1: So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to SoftRep Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community.
3: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to SoftRep Radio, SoftRep Radio on time, on target. Uh, we have a great podcast lined up this afternoon. We want to uh, welcome our special guest with us, Jack Devine. Jack is an author. He's written a couple of really good books. In fact, uh, we we had him on our podcast about six, seven years ago when he wrote the book "Good Hunting: An American Spy Master Story." It was a New York Times bestseller. But now. Jack has written another one called The Spymaster's Prison, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. It's due out on March 1st. We were thankful to get a uh, uh, an advanced copy of it. It is a very compelling read, and we encourage all of our readers and listeners out there to definitely check this book out. Um, just to give you a little background on Jack, uh, as I said to him uh, when we first started talking, Mr. Divine. but uh, he said to call him Jack. So Jack was a 32 year veteran of the CIA. Uh, he served, obviously he was a cold war guy. He started back in the late sixties. He went up through, I think 1999, you know, he was in charge of the CIA's counter narcotics center. Um, He also was in charge of the Afghan task force when the Russians were involved in Afghanistan. We were uh, funding the Mujahideen, and we're going to definitely talk about that because we have some, I guess, the sixth degree of separation. But anyway, uh, yeah, he's been there. He's been involved. Everything worked his way up to to the uh, acting director of operations for the CIA. So Jack has started from the ground level and worked his way all the way up to uh, that top floor. So we want to welcome him to the podcast. Jack, thanks for taking the time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, it's a great privilege. Uh, Your audience uh, means a great deal to me. Uh, You have people defending this country and have defended it. And for me to spend time with them is a great privilege.
3: Well, uh, I love the way your book started off because you had a quote, from an Afghan, I guess the considered the modern founder of the, the Afghan nation. And in this quote is, my last words to you, my son and successor, never trust the Russians. And, <laughs> you know, for somebody who grew up in the Cold War like myself and served them during that time frame, I couldn't feel any different. I have
2: a plaque in my office that has that quote on, and I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, but Charlie Wilson, who I'm sure virtually everybody or audience knows Congressman Wilson and his role in, in, uh, in the Afghan program, gave me that plaque, and, uh, and uh, it stuck with me. I didn't think it was going to land. In other words, when the Cold War came to the end, I thought, well, maybe I'll take it down. I'm glad I, I kept it up. Yeah, so, there you go. Uh, <laughs> I almost, I'm almost entitled to the book, that Never Trust the Russians. Uh, And maybe in retrospect, maybe I should have put that in as the second line. I know we toyed with it, the publisher. Yeah,
3: yeah, I'll tell you what, that was the best way to start it off. And, you know, I I think part of uh, of the gist of the book is the Cold War really isn't over, is it? Because, uh, you know, some of the maybe uh, main people have changed, but the goal is still the same, isn't it?
2: What's interesting about that, Steve, is uh, around the first chapter in the book, I talk about Comrade J. Uh, Comrade J. was the uh, deputy chief of what we used to call the KGB, and now it's called the SVR, New York City. And he was a walk-in. He came to the agency and volunteered his uh, his services. And you can imagine, in that position, he was extremely knowledgeable. You know, for the KGB in New York is a very active, high high uh, high activity uh, operation so in there he said you know when i joined the kgb uh, we had three main targets the united states nato and china <laughs> and when i left in 2004 he he defected and uh, you know uh, we took care of him but in 2004 he said when i left the three objectives were the united states nato and china <laughs> so uh you know it never stopped now there was a period i mean I happen to be in Russia, and, and I go into this in uh, June of 91, and the government fell in August. Um, I actually had an appointment to, to see the deputy chief of the KGB. I was their guest, believe it or not. Even after my, my significant role in the Afghan program, I was their guest because we wanted to, we wanted to warm up relations with the, the Russians, and anything that you think about talking about was counter-narcotics. So... I was the head of counter-narcotics, so I went out there and we made a a visit with the KGB. They were the host, actually. It's very ironic. But at the last minute, I was canceled from seeing the head of the KGB, and I saw the deputy. It was quite normal, and we went on with the trip. Part of the deal, because I had no great interest in going to Moscow at that time, but the fellow that was head of Russian operations, Milt Bearden, a public figure, he was the our, our chief out in Islamabad in those days. He said, if you come out, we'll have them fly us down to look at the poppy fields, but the poppy fields are right beside the Friendship Bridge, and I have a deal with them. If you come, you and I will stand on the bridge with the KGB, the Friendship Bridge, where the Russians slept. So I said, I'll come all in. That's so how I went, and we have this great, great picture. But the, what was interesting is uh, in August, the government was overthrown. The communist government collapsed in uh, in August of 91. I was there two months before. It's coincidental that I was there two months before, I quickly <laughs> point out. But what was interesting at that moment is, what was the future? What was it going to be? And so many people, uh, well, well, the Cold War is over. We won uh, peace dividend. We don't need to worry about the Russians. And we, over the years, cut our budget back GDP from a slice of, rather, the intelligence budget from 70% focused on Russia to 10%. So uh, the point was, there was a period in time where, going right to your question, Steve, where everyone was convinced the Cold War was over. And there might have been a few months, but uh, it, it was shortly, The KGB was one of the last places to give up its its stronghold on its files and so on. So they did continue to run operations, and I hope we talk about it later. The famous mole inside of the FBI, Robert Hansen, actually received a message right at the end after they collapsed and said, look, don't, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. We're not stopping. So... The point is they recovered and they recovered and they got stronger. Putin came and he is a KGB, KGB guy. And let me stop there because we can talk about him and other questions. But the struggle with the Russians never, uh, never ended. And I think we'll talk more about it. But I, I want to give it back to you
3: rather than me going on with the history of the book. Yeah. Well, and and again, uh, in, in the book, you basically, you know, you make the point that Russia is still our uh, Probably biggest enemy, um, you know, on the world stage, and um, you know, I, I thought that was a little surprising, I, because everyone today talks about the Chinese and their economic power, and the fact that you know the Chinese are trying to, you know, build up that what they whatever they call it, the Belt and Road Initiative in the, that their economy, and they're kind of they're kind of dusting off our game plan of how we brought down the Soviet Union against our, us. And uh, um, I was a little surprised by that, but you were saying that you believe that the Russians are still our biggest threat in the world. And can you talk about that a little bit?
2: That's a great question. And actually I'm surprised it's our second question. Um, you know, usually it doesn't, uh, someone doesn't raise it so much later. In fact, uh, when I was writing the book, uh, I don't want to talk and bore your audience about, the struggles of writing a book. This isn't what I do. I have a full-time job running in my own company with a partner of mine, Stanley Arkin. So this is something I believe in—the subject matter—and I like it's a way of getting your your voice out. In fact, there's an old saying, you know, old soldiers never die; they fade away. You know, MacArthur said that in the mm-hmm. Congress, and I I would say old spies never fade away unless they have a pen. If <laughs> they have a pen, they can keep on <laughs> uh, keep on writing. So uh, you know, I wrote the book, and, and in the process, I eventually came to the Russian issue because of the 2016 involvement. So I don't really dwell very long in the book on China because you can you can get you, you can get spun away into what's going on with China and then still terrorism, and it becomes a hodgepodge. But I have thought about it a great deals since then, and it's part of my you know. A thought process that any podcast, if someone doesn't ask, I'm going to go to the issue that you just did, Steve, and thank you for that. Because China is our number one, you know, what I call existential threat, if you want to say that, in terms of economic, military power. They're on the run. They're building, they're strong, their economy, they are, they are clearly the country that we need from a national security point of view to keep an eye on. And, but when we look at Russia, it is a it's a, it's half of what it was during the Cold War because they lost uh, they lost the Ukraine they lost all the countries around them. But when you look at their intelligence operations, and this is why I would refine if I were rewriting a paragraph in a book, I would refine it this way: they are the real intelligence threat. Now the Chinese came late to human intelligence. You know, if you look back, there were very few real significant spy cases involving the chinese until fairly recently the last 20 years and they're contained a bit because of the nature of the economic relationship with the united states so they're certainly in the united states collecting information Uh, they do it in bulk they do it in cyber but when you say to yourself who runs really hard-edged intelligence operations in that Who have spies? Who have years of work on getting penetrations inside the government? And even when you start to look at how aggressive are the Chinese in meddling in internal affairs in the United States? then you would say the Russians have been far more uh, threatening if you look at what they did in the 2016 election. And if you looked at the recent hack where they hacked the State Department, DHS, Energy, Treasury, And I think the world is only looking at the tip of the iceberg. So I would be fine if I were putting another paragraph in the book, and that would be, you know, we need to uh, man up, if you will, for dealing with China as a major Mm -hmm. threat. Both of them have nuclear weapons and it's uh, mutual destruction. So that's sort of a counterweight in all the ways one acts around the world. uh, You know, China is going to be the the biggest handful. But if you look at Russia... Mm-hmm. uh and and you look at what they're in the united states but if you look at putin's game plan it is a cold war right on it's a cold war game plan and you know communism doesn't exist he's not propagating it but he is propagating the old russia objectives warm water ports weaken the weaken your adversaries weaken the countries around it. and to use very aggressive force he's used it in the crimea in Ukraine, so he is very formidable, and his um, tactically, we could talk about the strategy in a minute. So it's in that context, and I know I've gone on a bit, but you know, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction. People say, "Well, it's got to be China," and that's true in the macro picture. But if you talk about intelligence threats, mm-hmm. national security, um, and intelligence
3: operations, uh, the Russians, I still put at number one. And, uh, you know, talking about the Russians and you, you mentioned the, you know, the, uh, excuse me, the interference in the 2016 election. And then you, you just mentioned the hacking, you know, you, you talk uh, at length in the book about the Moscow rules, how they were breaking the Moscow rules and how they, you know, everyone since uh, I guess, since the beginning of time, I guess, they, we've always collected intelligence on each other, but we don't act upon it. That's um, what basically the Moscow rules are correct. But
2: well, we'll but
3: see what I can go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I meant to say, but they've taken that one step further. And they've acted upon that. And that's something that we've never done against each other. Up until this time, so that's a great observation, and I want to give you a, a pat in the
2: back. You know, I've been interviewed by a lot of people over the years, and sometimes they read a chapter or a snippet that someone gives them. You clearly have read my book, so I'm quite <laughs> flattered, and I want to compliment because it's a key point. It's a really important thing to understand, and uh, and that is uh, in the Cold War, which you and I were involved in, and uh, you know, I was involved, in, and so were you. Beyond that. But uh, in the Cold War, we had some, there were some unwritten rules. And the unwritten rules were, the, were, you didn't counterfeit each other's money, why? Because you would destroy the entire economic system, right? Except for a couple a couple isolated incidents. We did not rough up each other's officers. Now, there were some big incidents you could imagine, but not many. So it, it, there were certain ground rules we were not gonna be as involved in targeted assassinations and all those things against each other. So there were ground rules. And one of them was, uh, and again, you're not going to find this written down in a single contract. But we were not going to interfere directly in the political dynamics of the internal countries. We weren't going to stir up a revolution in Russia. And we expected them not to fiddle around in our elections. So that was an understanding of the Moscow rules. Now, there was another phrase, another more modern or or uh, I'm, I'm dating it from, say, the beginning of the Cold War. Later on, there are other intelligence people that refer to Moscow rules on how you behave in Moscow. In other words, you don't wear a Mets hat <laughs> if you're going out for a clandestine meeting, and so on. And there are legitimate things on how you operate, and it's very tactical. But there is a, one that supersedes that, and that is this understanding: you don't meddle in each other's internal affairs. So the big deal for me in 2016, I actually had trouble comprehending and saying, "It can't be. They cannot just be hacking." I mean, they're they're hacking, but they're using it. They're going in and trolling. in uh, the uh, Facebook. I mean, there's, as you know, in the book, I mean, thousands, and thousands of, things of messages that were in in their in in their hands. And while it may have marginally, and I believe this to be the case, I was surprised by the fact that. The Russians were uh, meddling directly in our our internal political affairs. We are not doing it in in their country, and we haven't been. So it's a major, it's a seismic change in how you do business. And um, there are no, in the present day, there are no Moscow rules. Apparently, they've been abrogated, and the Russians are much more aggressive and particularly it involves the United States internal affairs. And this needs to be uh, be uh, be corrected. So the problem in cyber warfare, which uh, so many of the people out there are are, are expert, uh, experts, everyone, as you said earlier on, is collecting everything they can. From the smallest country, largest country, there's so much technical capability, everybody tries to collect. Um, but it's the use of the information and how you use these cyber tools that are quite different. And uh, there is a bit of instability right now in the cyber world because there are no rules. There are rules in the nuclear exchange. There's treaties. There's negotiations that have been worked out over many years. But cyber, and the Russians are now, uh, when you look at it, extremely aggressive in this space. And uh, we, we have—it's a major. It was a dilemma for the Trump administration near the end, and it's a dilemma of the Biden
3: administration. What are you going to do about it? yeah, and before we get into that, I, I just wanted to share. i mean, as as again, going back to being a cold warrior, we used to study our you know our uh, potential adversary. and when when the story first came out that the Russians were, you know, meddling in the election basically for the benefit of President Trump over Hillary Clinton. I discounted that. I was like, and I'll be honest with you, I, I said that that can't be true, because the Russians, from reading about them, studying what I could, they value stable, predictable personalities, and as we all know, President Trump is none of those things. He's kind of like that—that that, you know that uh, I don't want to say oddball, but he's that uh, wild card that's in the mix. And I found it very interesting that the Russians would favor him over Clinton, who they knew obviously much better than they did Trump.
2: I had the same reaction, but in the process of writing the book, and as I dug through some research, I kept trying to figure this out because as you said, uh, what what you really want on the other side is someone that's very predictable. You want civility. They know the Trump, uh, they, they knew the Biden people. They know the Hillary people. They knew the Bush people. They knew what they were getting. You can, you, you can work within parameters. They weren't sure. So I would say, well, it's really, a, you know, it just makes no sense. Or have they lost their, their marbles in this? But the more I get into it, and I, you know, and I know you, you and your team are aware of this but you know they've developed a strategy we call hybrid warfare right mm-hmm. and the warfare is you know uh, while they might use uh, uh, it's, you know, it's very hard now to put land armies against each other among major powers right so there is a struggle and uh, uh, the the hybrid warfare strategy suggested you use propaganda economic you use cyber and you try and weaken the enemy you just weaken the enemy Right. So I actually believe that it wasn't as sharply focused as we think. It wasn't that they wanted Trump to win so much as they thought that that was the best way to weaken the environment. In other words, you would have the political chaos and they don't want to coup. They don't want an overthrow of government, but they want they want uh, their strategy is to weaken America's political fiber. And I think to some degree that was successful. The operation wasn't so successful in the sense of, okay, how many ballot boxes did they impact i' i say very little, but their involvement then led to the Lawler investigation and party and the, and the, uh, the very partisan environment got worse. So, I mean, to some degree, uh, I'm not sure they had this great vision of where, how far it was gonna go, but their motivations, um, their motivations are, not so person directed. And I know there's a whole school book out that trumps us by and I you know that's all nonsense is in my view. But their objective was a different one. And they want to keep us off balance and they want to undermine us. And that's why they're in the cyberspace. They're they're spreading, you know, uh malicious rumors and disinformation. And they've been in the disinformation pre pre uh pre Bolshevik period, right? The Russians have been into disinformation, and they're they're very good at it. I go into a couple of examples. One of the things I do in the book is go back and forth of lessons learned from what they did in the past. And if I could ramble for just one case that I go into, there was a great case by and a, a Russian defector was involved when it came out. And you know, back back in the, in the middle of the Cold War, suddenly there was a a trove of documents nazi documents that were found right deep sea diver operation neptune and they bring up but it was all russian disinformation and mark or this fellow that defected to it said look we fabricated all of this but it did great damage in the german government because it tied many people to nazi government they weren't and so they've been around and it's a classic case of sort of how do you stir up uh, trouble uh, trouble out there so i think I think we should move away when we're looking at there's So that there's it's so much about Trump. I, I think Trump did some, as you know, in terms of the Ukraine, did was pretty aggressive and pushing back and sanctions and so on. So it, I think there's a, there's a bigger it's a bigger part of their their strategy, and it's not to defeat us, overthrow us, but to keep us weak. And the weaker we are, the more freedom they have, and the less able we are to check them anywhere. So it's It took me a long time to come to what I believe is my sense of of where they are.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned that in the book and it was fascinating about that internet research agency, you know, it's run by the same guy who runs the Wagner Group who all of our readers know all about that because that's the uh, Putin chef. And you talked about the 80,000 Facebook, you know, personas and, you know, 2,700 Twitter accounts and thousands of YouTube videos, all spreading this disinformation or misinformation program, whatever you want to call it. And the not my president uh, movement was all of Russian fabrication. And I, you know, I think it was very successful at, at subverting us and and driving us further apart than we already were. Right. I think that
2: that's, that would be a point that I underscore as well. It's not so much about who won the election; it's just the chaos that or political turmoil that that followed from it. One other thing I would note on this: there for a while, people said, "Well, it must have been an accident; like some general got off the get off the reservation, and they weren't paying enough attention." And you know, they, they regret. In fact, I even had some some in the private sector. I'm in the private sector intelligence, business, there was some material coming out saying, "Oh." This is something that was done by a junior that was their own disinformation done by a junior person. I I honestly believe that these things are cleared at the very top. That this is a highly controlled part of a strategy. And if it was if, if it was some general he would have been shot and it would have stopped. It hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. So so I, I think when we think about it, it's it's a thoughtful plan. It's not consistent with how we view the world. And I I actually think that Putin is a great tactician and allows these strategists, which we could talk about. But, you know, this is not an accident. This is not, you know, some one-off adventure that you're doing It's part of their overall strategy. And it's much more aggressive than the Chinese. The Chinese are building military might, and that's, you know, something we need to deal with. Uh, I don't anticipate a nose-to-nose with the Chinese, but right now, where where are we? where where's the troublemaker in the
3: political arena? and it's, uh,
2: it's the Russians
3: mm-hmm. and, and you know with the russians um you know they've taken this aggressive stance and they've taken it the next step uh what do you foresee as being you know what president biden who's now just re, you know been in office about a little more than a month what what's his uh what, what do you think his game plan has to be to Right to ship, so
2: to speak. Right. So let me, with your indulgence, two quick sure. points. Another another title of the book was going to be dueling banjos, <laughs> because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know the Russians would do something and then we'd play back, then they would do something. This is true in Afghanistan, by the way, and when we get to it, it was dueling banjos until the singer came and then all all the all the strings broke on their banjo, but. So there's this back and forth, so today the question is is there, is there going to be going back man, going banjos will be the big question, but I wanted to take just a second and uh, talk about Putin because this is uh, this is a case of it takes two to tango mm-hmm. biden trump may want to do whatever they want to do, but it takes another person to to agree to play along right so I think we need to know where. What we need to understand the other player, and so the other player uh, being Putin, and there's a, there's a, I call it the Spy Master President, and the, the book there's a chapter on it, and just like Never Trust the Russians in the subtitle, the subtitle under the Spy Master President is, um, there is no such thing as a, a former KGB officer, quote Vladimir Putin, and so that yes. was. Putin. <laughs> And I understand that as a former CIA guy, it it doesn't mean, you know, I did turn in my car and I didn't, you know, people think I run ex-CIA agents, that's not true, you know, I went out (laughs) and built my own own foreign capability, but I'll tell you, I have a CIA mentality, you know, it's like, how do I look at the world? That's why I call this five minutes prison. I look at it from sort of the environment I grew up, just like you would look at it from a special forces. How do you look at things, right? So I would say to you, Putin is self-declaring, the way I look at the world is a KGB guy. And what kind of KGB guy was he? Well, he wanted to join at 17, they didn't accept him, but he got in eventually. And he was a true believer in being a KGB person, appealed to his per- personality. But he wasn't sent to Paris, Mexico City, Tokyo, where you have fine wines and you enjoy the, uh, the benefits of the West. He was sent to Dresden, East Germany, you know, it was a dreadful <laughs> place, you know. They hadn't had fine wines in, 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 in decades. So, but in that time frame, the head of the East German service was I called Marcus Wolf, and Marcus Wolf was uh, uh, the ultimate spy master in the Cold War. He must have had I, I think I heard once a hundred thousand spies. He had the Sparrows and uh, Cassina and words so He was actually training officers. To be uh, attractive. And the Romeos would try and recruit secretaries in the West, and uh, the Sparrows, and, and it opened, it even open the to Bertello, Bertello to, to try and recruit uh, Western, uh, Western diplomats. So it was a hard nosed Cold War place, right? And so when the Soviet Union fell, uh, Putin is there, and by his own words, and I understand it. I can identify he Must have been totally devastated what happened to him. His service, his mission, you know, his country, and he, you know, set out that that was never going to happen again. Russia would be strong again, and he went off to St. Petersburg and got into politics, and then um, got tied in with the, with Yeltsin and the, the powerhouses in Russia. Thought, so, well, he's he's one of the company guys. He's manageable, and that was. Probably true until the day he became, you know, the the president. Uh, but before that, he did serve as the head of the FSB, their version of the FBI. So even after he left the KGB, he was running internal operations, the internal operation in Russia, or even other ended. So you have someone who has a Cold War mindset, just like you, just like many of your, you know. They he has a way of looking at the world. So. He looks at it like Comrade J, number one target, U.S. You know they've uh, they humiliated us, and now you know we're going to be strong again. So what did he do? He set out the uh, to get back the the Ukraine and the uh, Crimea. The the Soviet, the Soviet Union was a much more economically important base with Ukraine than without it. Today, the GDP of Russia is probably matching Spain or Italy. So. He took very aggressive actions. These are Cold War actions, or getting into Syria. So uh, he he has a lousy strategy because I think Russia belongs in the West. I mean, there's no communism. They should benefit from the economic well-being of the West and the liberal. But he has decided, and you now he's going to. We are still the adversary. And he's going to do those things to make his country strong and in an adversarial position. We need to understand this before we go and say, "Hey, look, let's go to Moscow and charm the guy." Or, you know, right. When he showed up in Helsinki, for example, and uh, he showed up with his talking points, he knew what he was going to be doing. In that. And I think our side was thinking, "Look, you know, charm. We'll put a charm offensive on him." And so this comes back to your question about the Biden administration. Now, a lot of the folks that are in there have worked with the Russians before. They have views about it. Um, and uh, the question I have is, it's certainly not going to be won over by Charming. right? It's, we're going to have to show some strength and resolve in this. And uh, the last time when when the Russians went into the Crimean, eastern ukraine using covert action assets you know green men as they said green people um our response was pretty limp and uh and, I, I, and, and also they used tremendous amount of cyber in fact they had just over the last couple of days another major cyber assault in ukraine um, so you know they're very very aggressive in executing it so when they get to the table um you know they're going to try and create a you know a new a new treaty on arms and the russians weren't honoring it the last time so i mean i think you know part of our national strength is we need to get our act together at home we have to be uh, we have to return to bipartisan issues on national security we need to get the economy marching make make sure our military is well taken care of and modern in the way that it it needs to be and, and uh I'm not, I wouldn't worry about our military facing the Russians, and God forbid they'd ever get to that, because I do think we have the best military in the world. So there's, I, I think, just jawboning this thing. You're not going to change him on his strategy, and there has to be some sub rosa, you know, confidential discussions about what what are the limits of the cyber, or where because we're not going to go to war on the ground. You know, how how far, What's what are the rules of the game? And, you know, this has to cease and desist. And if it doesn't, then I think there's a hard decision that the Biden administration has to make. And that is, do you start to, you know, do you start to band up with the dueling banjos? Because you cannot let it go unresolved and you have to make it sufficiently. You try and calibrate it so it's commensurate to the, um, to the action, your response is commensurate with it not excessive and, and not not weaker than. So I think there's some tough decisions ahead, mm-hmm. but I think there are people who tend to us, underestimate Putin and the fact that he knows what he's doing. He knows he has a strategy. We don't like it. And the only way you back somebody off is you have to be strong. Our military has to be strong. Our country has to be strong. We have to mean what we say. We can't you know get, pop out our chest and then fire... Fire a, a tomahawk into the desert, you know, and say, "Okay, now they'll pay attention." So I think there's some tough years ahead with Russia, and very tough years on on China. So we be, we need to be united. Our intelligence service have to be funded, and and uh, our military needs to be funded and prepared, and and, uh, and to uh, as a deterrent uh, to further aggression. So that's why I, I say. In the subtitle of the book, you know, the fight against Russian aggression. So we're looking, we have to recognize that's what it is. And then we have to, you know, uh, do what needs to be done using all the toolboxes. And you save military response to the very end. And when you're looking at uh, Russia and its nuclear your power, you're, we're not going to go toe to toe, but there'll probably be green men in places where we will have our version of green
3: men as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, speaking of Putin and, you know, who we know, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, but it seems like we're, you know, every day it's, it's seeming like Russia is more and more on that, you know, on that kind of footing. Who do you think, because I've heard rumors that his health isn't the greatest right now. If If anything were to happen to him. Do so you have, in just a personal opinion, who, who might step in? Because it doesn't seem like he has any second-in-command around him.
2: Well, first, let me take the first one. I can't tell you over all my years how many how many state leaders were about to die. I can't yeah. tell you the, the the hundred reports on Castro dying over the years. Right? Uh, we actually ran operations. Uh, it's in the public domain, but you know. One of the, the heads of state, we go to the bathroom someplace, we'd have some technicians test the urine. <laughs> They'd have a pipe run off and test it to see whether they were going to die, you know. And it always came <laughs> back, hey, he's, not sick, he's not as sick as you think he is. So I put no stock in that at all. I said, no, you know, this is that wishful, you know, wishful thinking. But the second part, you shouldn't wish for it because you don't know what's behind it. And when you have an autocratic government, uh, they usually end badly. And there's superior chaos, and it usually goes to the strong. And the problem today, it's a little bit harder to calibrate because the strong, the, strong, uh, the weapon they may have uh, it may be a six by three iPhone, right? And they're able to rally people out of the street, and so you could, you know, really, really want in the West. just like they, they should want a stable. uh, Personality. we want stability in Russia. You know, whatever it is, we would love to have transition. It's very interesting. I noticed in the book that uh, President Bush forewarned Gorbachev said, there's a coup coming. There's a coup coming. He said, I can handle it. Well, good luck. That didn't (laughs) work out so well. So why did we do that? You know, not because we love Gorbachev, but we didn't want, you know, we had no idea what was coming. They got nuclear weapons. So, you know, I think uh, I, I, I think the question of how he leaves. But I think what is more important today is the cracks that we're seeing from the scent because of the arrest of, uh, of the words, yeah, yeah, I mean, who wants to demonstrate, but who wants to demonstrate in the winter in Russia? I mean, you gotta really be <laughs> upset, you know? So my point is, I think we're seeing some cracks here. And the problem in this modern age uh you know if they have the same thing in the spring you know he might get twice as many people out it's uh you know he needs to go to the mountain i mean look he's been a very successful he's a master he, let's see you got to tip your hat i mean he was in his thirties i think when he started his ride so he's uh the head of and he made he consolidated power very impressive capabilities, still relatively young in terms of national leaders today, not mentioning our leaders, any of them by name. But so I think he has to ask himself, you know, is this hybrid strategy and being aggressive with the U.S., is that the right answer? Uh, Is that the future here? Is that going to, you know, uh, was Tip O'Neill, the famous congressman in Massachusetts who controlled the Congress in a masterful way? once said, all politics are local, right? So the determining factor in Russia is what's happening inside Russia, right? And we should not mess around. I mean, I wanna be clear, I'm not suggesting we mess around because you have no idea where it's gonna end up. However, as I said, if he doesn't stop, then we've gotta revisit the issue. But I would hope that he would look at his own situation and say, listen, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can still be the top guy, but I can have a role in the West and ameliorate things at home. Not easy to manage, um, but if he stays with a, a, hard, it's a very tricky thing, you know, he keeps Nivaldo uh, in prison. In prison, he, he has to be careful; he doesn't make him a martyr, right? So, but if he's too weak, so he's I'm probably trying to figure it out. But this is a challenge to him, and I would personally prefer—I mean, at some point, you know, he's got to move on. That, you know, that is done through—you know—you free elections take place, and I, I don't think there's any experts. Uh, you know, I, I was listening. I want to tell you the group where, you know, they'll be calling me and yelling, you know, people that study Russia and they, you know, their view, they have no idea of, you know, what comes next, uh, who does. Uh, and that's why preparedness, you know, the, the military and everybody on this call understands preparing the battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for all contingencies in the world. And we need to be alert. And there's stability inherent in in autocratic governments. There's stability inherent in Russia, there's stability inherent in Iran, there's stability inherent in China, just to pick the the big three. And they can come unraveled in ways that are, are surprising historically. I don't think any of them are on the ropes by any stretch of the imagination, but they all have internal problems that under the wrong set of circumstances you know things can get out of hand and and i, I would say the one thing that's different today about you know the covert action world and and stability is things can unravel quickly because of social media and the cyber capabilities and communications capability it doesn't help you rebuild a thing that's one thing i can say the social media can destroy a lot of things it doesn't build it doesn't do building so I think good intelligence. We have to really understand the dynamics of what's going on in these countries, and not the wishful thinking of business, the business sector or the wishful thinking of uh, someone who wants to do good. I mean, I think you have to take a hard nosed look at the world and, uh, and be prepared for for multiple contingencies. And I, everybody everybody understands that that you know the military has a plan for a plan for a plan. So and that's necessary and at times. It doesn't feel like it's um, productive. But until the crisis comes, you can zero you can in on your plan that's closest to the reality.
1: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100 percent sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations
3: like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. We're talking with Jack Devine, former uh, acting director of operations for the CIA, who has written his book, which is uh, titled Spymaster's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression, comes out on March 1st. And um, you you touched on this briefly in the book, but I I have to ask you, uh, when it comes to Charlie Wilson, and we mentioned him earlier uh, when we were talking, uh, did you actually meet Charlie Wilson a, a, a lot, or was it just a few times? And what was your impression of the book and the film when it came out? No, I got to know Charlie very well. Traveled with him. We went out to uh,
2: uh, Pakistan a couple of times up in the Peshawar with the, with the uh, along the border. Some say that Charlie actually took a horse in Afghanistan. Others would say we staged it, so he looked like he was in Afghanistan. Kind of about <laughs> uh, well, that so he was uh, he was underestimated by many people. he had a you know a notorious uh, lifestyle which he propagated. he created the, the myth or of Charlie, which maybe came into the reality, but he was an Annapolis graduate he was a serious guy uh, smart um, um to earth guy he, you know uh, didn't have a dime, and he was in Texas, a young man and you know, he made a, a, a role for himself. And uh, when he had uh, left the Congress and I had left the agency, he came to New York and uh, we had dinner at Sparks Restaurant. If you know Sparks Restaurant, that's where the mafia Don Castellano was assassinated, right? Yes. So it's appealed, Charlie had a sense <laughs> of romance, right? <laughs> you can't go, you know, uh, uh, Smith and Walensky and have a steak. No, you got to go to <laughs> Sparks. So we go to Sparks. It's, we're with our wives, and uh, he leaned across the table and said, "Jack, I know, I, I know you didn't like the book, but God, you're going to hate the movie." <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and what what he was really talking about, it, it wasn't Charlie' Wilson's work. He was a bigger and life figure. I'm glad I knew him, uh, and I, I think he was a contributor to, to the effort. He was a good face out in the. Uh, uh, meeting with the foreign leaders and uh, was always pushing him down in the hill he was he was able to steer money but it wasn't his program and the reason this annoys me um is because i think people in america need to understand covert action that's why i wrote the first book good honey and that is how is how does covert how does covert action run and one of the great myths, with people don't understand, the president of the United, States, the United States signs the approval. In other words, he says you can use force on this, right? And this is these are the guidelines. And now you have to go brief Congress, right? And Congress has to get in and fund you, right? And then you have the job. You got to get some. You got to get allies. You got to get people who want to fight. And I have a whole set of principles around this. So it's a government program. And so while I traveled and saw Charlie often, I would tell you. Substantively, on decision making in the party, I don't think we had five discussions. I can only remember one or two of them, and one was why did you, Jack ship buying weapons from the majority of the weapons from Egypt to, to China? Okay, now remember this is going back when China was allied with us here. Um, and they said very simple reason, Charlie, they're providing them quicker, faster, cheaper, right? They said, I got it, okay, okay. So the point was Charlie had no say in it. Now, if you were to go in Charlie's office, he had a stinger missile hanging over his door. And it came from a CIA, you know, CIA office They thought, Oh, that'd be nice, give Charlie a stinger, right? Yeah. <laughs> but what it did is it identifies him with the Stinger missile. And that's not how the Stinger went in. Charlie actually opposed it. He thought he was doing a good thing because I think someone whispered in his ear tell the tell the Pakistanis when the officials come out that you don't need or one stingers in the program. And that's what happened for a while because there were people in Washington that were afraid that if the stinger went in, it would be World War Three. So when I arrived at the Afghan Task Force, I did have a good feeling for this uh, sense of concern and I was looking at it as, um what 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 changes us for and we were nine million pounds of was going across the border and it was daily and it was uh, locked. uh which uh, daily or monthly I've forgotten it, the line we couldn't cross the line because the russians were using the the uh the spent their and and their uh, hind helicopters and was suppressing it. And we had like doing bandages again, we would put in one weapon system, you know, we started out with like World War II weapons, rifles. And then by the end, we had very sophisticated weapons. And the Stinger was an application because there was no US weapons in the battlefield other than the Stinger. So it was a big policy decision. And I went down to uh, the White House one day and the agency had voted against it and voted against it. And, uh, they showed a mock a shoot down of the Stinger. And uh, I said, damn it, we need that. So everybody in the room didn't say, your office has been voting this down. They said, oh, Jack, great idea. Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote a, a memo, and it ends up, you know, with the president signing off. The next day I get a call, they say, go over and talk to a uh, three star general. I know his name, but I won't mention it. A good guy, three star general, had the logistics. uh, Look, I need X number of your things. He said, "Look, the boys don't have it." I said, "Look, I understand it, but we're out there now, and I've been told to come." And he said, "Oh well, I'd like to give it to you, but you know, go pound sand or whatever." (laughs) So I called the White House and said, "You go back tomorrow." So I went back tomorrow dutifully. You know, I I just empathized with his position because he really didn't want to do it, and I understood his reasoning. And, you know, it's like you bite your lip and the blood starts to come out of the corners. Okay, you can have them, all right? But don't come back. <laughs> so I never saw them again. So they went in. And what I'm saying to you is how the weapons were organized, who got what, when they got it, where, what was the strategy? Uh, it, it, this wasn't Charlie's game. Charlie's was, he worked the hill very well and he was a good ambassador and, you know, a good uh, morale guy. But... If I were, if you come to me and say, listen, Jack, why don't you and I put a movie together? We're going to have all these bureaucrats, you and all the other bureaucrats, and we'll get some mule skinners in this, and we'll throw a little of this, and let's make a movie, say, oh, that's that's boring. No one's going to watch that. Oh, let's get a congressman with Julie Roberts, and they solve the whole world. They go out single-handedly with some crazy CIA guy, and all works out, and the whole thing falls off. It became a great book, <laughs> a great movie, and uh, you know. And, but it just isn't a reality. So when you get around and say, "Listen, I have a problem. Let's go find some congressman and some socialite and uh, see if we can't go out there and and change things to change the world with covert action." And this was the most successful operation, I think, in the history of the agency up to that point. You know, it requires a lot of people doing a lot of different things multiple allies, logistics, it's a, it was a war of logistics, that's not run by a single congressman, that's, you know, offices and people. And I think Steve, you even had a hand in the mule. my favorite mule. Uh, <laughs> that's mule it. I mean, Sorry.
3: you know, when you m- mentioned mule skinners, uh, <clears throat> at the time, I mean, there was no, as, as we all know, logistics drive the train. And, you know, we talked about that earlier. And, and you know, the Mujahideen at that time, they didn't have logistics. So, you know, the agency was gonna furnish them with mules from China, which is like, you know, unbelievably, and so the agency got special forces on board and they said, you know, uh, we need you guys to come up with some mule packs for the mules, the panniers, and this is the kind of stuff that they're gonna be carrying. We need, you know, Russian 82 millimeter mortars, we need stinger missiles and we need ammo crates and all this and um so uh, my team you know we were involved with that i, I don't think i'm breaking any uh, security regulations this many years after the fact but it was um it was very interesting because you know when we first started it uh <clears throat> we were working on it down in the mountains in honduras with uh, honduran soldiers and the first day that You know, we were going to leave the compound. We had everything all strapped up and we thought we had it down. And by the end of the day, everything was falling out. The mules were falling down. The packs were falling off. I think we got about 500 yards. You could still see the gate of the compound. And then, you know, each day we'd have to go (laughs) back and, you know, uh, change things a little bit. And we ended up uh, working it all out. And later, after the fact, as you and I were talking, uh, when... All this came out later on, and you know, with the agency's efforts with the Mujahideen, we saw the the mules, pictures of them with the Mujahideen guys, and we saw those saddles, and we were like, "Hey, we made those." <laughs> so, but you know,
2: Steve, it was such important. I mean, you know, we're talking down in the weeds, but that's how logistics is down in the weeds. So, if you looked at the program, and again, I keep the juxtaposition of Charlie beside you. This is in Charlie's game. So, first of all, you have to buy uh a billion dollars worth of weapons where do you buy them you, you can't buy you can't get american weapons you have to buy them that's a logistical problem how do you get them out there that you know, that means boats trains i mean at one point i probably owed more toyota trucks than anybody in the uh, in asia because we had trucks but you got to a certain point and the trucks couldn't go over the mountains right and you needed the mules or you're going to stay at the bottom so uh, unbeknownst to you maybe at the time, but we were buying 9,000 mules and marching them across China. <laughs> because Pakistani mules did not work. And the other thing is, uh, you know, what I don't, I'm a city guy. I don't know, you know, as I said before, a horse or a mule, but I'll tell you, Tennessee mules do not work in Afghanistan, right? So it's, you, you had to know this stuff and you needed experts. And so we ended up Chinese mules. mules worked. And then you needed saddles. You needed tailored saddles to carry the type of, of weapons and it was a big, uh, big, uh, big breakthrough. So the, the point that I would make is there were lots of people and you touched it and, there was, you know, a guy that, uh, you know, mule skinners and all, all these t- experts that were in there, medical trainers, you know, the stingers weren't, you know, they were trained, uh, they weren't trained by an agency guy. You had a couple of people that came out of Ford Bragg, and, you know, that had just been trained on it, went out there and everybody did their so when the when the russians left and they marched across the friendship bridge a cable went out from the eighties saying we won and i thought that was the right uh, pronoun we lots of people lots of people over many years contributed so this is why charlie said jack you're going to hate, gonna hate the movie. <laughs> well and it's Hollywood. not because of charlie it's not about charlie it's about how are things done in, in running these types of efforts? And again, I'm not a logistics guy. I know a hell of a lot more about it now. I knew enough to get some really good logistic guys around me that were yeah. were, were outstanding. And I just read a book on General Grant, you know, and you know, he <laughs> had a spotty career will be nice. But when you got into the Civil War, and I started to look at it instead of the glory of uh, – And I don't want to offend anyone who's a fan of uh, Robert E. Lee, but Grant was a quartermaster out in some Western fort or something during the Indian Wars. And he was a logistics guy. At the end, that war was all during the Civil War, one of the great tragedies of our country. The confrontation, it was logistics. So I am now a believer in logistics. If you're going to go, into any sort of combat of any proportions or you're going to go into a covert action operation, or you're going to run a political operation. You need to get your blocking and tackling done. You need to get your plumbing done. You need your master sergeant. In other words, it isn't, you can't think in these broad movie tones of how things get and it's hard work. You know, if you're looking for glory, don't look for the logistics job, you know? And I, I went out of my way at the end when I was leaving to make special note to the logistics. These are unsung heroes, and uh, and so a lot of people get the glory, but the the, the real backbone are logistics. So if you got folks out there that log time, if you will, in logs, then you know I tip my hat to them. It wasn't Charlie Wilson's, where I would say at the end of the day, it probably was the the logs team that, that made this happen and uh, frankly yeah, it was we, uh, let me just make a comment of the, about congress and the president of the united states both of them were 100 the percent Republicans and democrats they couldn't do enough down on the hill now you were in honduras like counterparts who went down talking about Central america they didn't have it and it ended up the way it did but on this particular project when it works you know you have to have congress you have to have it you have to have the budget and you can't be Leaking and all the things, terrible things that happen today. And the president of the United States has to put his, his his signature down on the line, and then then people and professionals can do what they can do, and the professionals and military and the agency can get it done. So they're the basic ingredient. So it's not about Charlie at all. And I don't know, I have nothing but good things to say about Charlie. But I want people to understand how wars are, and covert wars are run.
3: Yeah, and it's just Hollywood. They have put a face on it, so they can sell it and you know what better wouldn't sell it you wouldn't see to... you, you wouldn't sell it with my face let me tell you, <laughs> if you look at <laughs> nor mine <laughs> you know. nor
2: mine tom, so uh <laughs> yeah. tom hanks oh. tom tom hanks i'm not belugosi maybe <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> but um no I, and i wanted to ask you um i know that you served in the agency for for you know 30 years and um a lot of the, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research on the early days of the agency because so many of them came from OSS and which was the forerunner of both the agency and uh, the Army Special Forces. Uh, Bill Colby, Bill Casey, Alan Dallas, Richard Helms. And my favorite uh, person from OSS who will later join CIA was uh, Virginia Hall. Did Did you get to meet any of these? You know, the the people that started the agency back in the day?
2: I did. In fact, most of the people uh, when I first joined had roots in it. I mean, it was, it, you know, these are the big names. These were the public figures, right? But, you know, the chief of China, the chief of uh, Latin America, they had all logged uh, time in World War II and in OSS in, in particular. Um, and, and Bill Casey, I mean, you know, the director, there was uh, OSS uh, Europe. But, uh, Virginia Hall, I didn't know from Adam, except when I, I was in, uh, I guess I was on the Dominican Republic desk, which was not the center of the world, although in 65 it was, and I, I joined afterwards, but I was standing in the hallway, and, uh, and the guy beside me sort of straightened up, right, and the woman walked by, uh, nothing, nowhere, well, you seem to really come alive when she walked by, I said, well, that's that's Virginia Hall, you know, Virginia Hall. And now today she's better known, but back then. So Virginia Hall for the listeners, actually, if you go into the CIA, um, this is a very, might be of a human interest story. You go in and it's beautifully done in my view. It's one of the best architectural buildings in government. I obviously have a bias, but I'll leave out all the dynamics. I do go into the book at the beginning because there's some meaning to the, the entranceway and the stars and the quotes and but on the wall as you're going down the right-hand side there are paintings that have been professionally done and commissioned someone commissions them and it's painted and the first one uh, they moved around a little bit was virginia hall uh, further down uh, number three or four along the wall is the second when the uh, a replica of the stinger shoot down taken by video at the time and then transposed into um, into a formal uh, uh, painting. Uh, so Virginia Hall, the picture has her in a, looks like a tent, cranking out messages, but Virginia Hall was, uh, you know, spoke uh, French fluently and she was in Turkey as a young woman and had a, a hunting accident and barely damaged, lost the bottom part of her leg. And she had artificial limb in those days. And uh, she tried to Gussie yeah tries to join during World War Two, and uh, the Brits took her in, and then she got into the OSS, and she dropped. They had they dropped her behind the lines in uh, France, and she became the most wanted spy by the Nazis because she was the one of the principal organizers of the resistance and the communicator in, in France, and uh, it was. It was uh, and she was received the top medal from the French, the British, and the Americans for her her deeds. Uh, people she worked with, many of them were uh, you know, executed. Uh, she got out just in time. Uh, she went out over the mountains with the the legs. She had a nickname for it. It was Crothers C- or something Cuthbert. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was it. So they sent a <laughs> message saying, "Do you have? Are you having trouble getting out?" And they said, "Oh, the only problem is with uh, what was the name again?"
3: Cuthbert. She named her leg.
2: <laughs> yeah. so, so I said, well, no problems with this. And uh, so they sent a note, terminate. <laughs> said, yeah. no, shoot uh, him. That was always CIA didn't do that. But yeah, so a lot of people. But I was uh, I was recruited in the Latin American division. Um, and his alias was Tom Bender. That's not his real name. But he also worked behind the lines in in, uh, in France. Uh, Organizing resistance. So it wasn't just these top level people. I, I would say the entire building was um, uh, permeated with uh, OSS. And it's not just people, but people bring cultures with them. And it was uh, the, the thing that I associated most with the agency through my career was a spirit of can do. You want an elephant delivered tomorrow to, to Boston or Shanghai? I got it. <laughs> Can no. do. It. And there was an esprit and a sensitivity about people and you know caring for people. It was uh, it was something to behold. But The other thing that I found fascinating is if you were a self promoter in that group. Uh, I'm not saying there wasn't any, but you know, it was all about mission. And if you looked like you were just hustling, you didn't. Your career didn't go anywhere. They really believe in God and country, and mm-hmm. they behave that way. Uh, the other thing that you know, people think you know, CIA lie, cheat, and steal, but it has a very high standard inside to protect itself. I guess. But you know, we produce a lot of intelligence and a lot of delicate operations. And I think of my career, and if if three people looked me in the eye and lied to me a lot of people didn't tell me the whole story which is a little different it's a lie if you ever get caught lying about anything you're doing you're reporting you're 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 finished it's just so fundamental as I said you walk through the door you should know the truth it'll set you free if you do not adhere to that you're finished and that was a culture that was uh, instilled in the agency from the OSS and uh, a lot of dedicated people, um, great sacrifice, and no glory. You know, today I'm a, I'm allowed to write a book <laughs> because I'm tired of other people writing books tell, telling their story and have never been there. But, you know, they were all quiet, and, and the intelligence side is very quiet. The reason I'm able to write is I became part public at the end, but more importantly, I got involved in one can ask themselves why, but I think partly because I ran through it, is covert action. So I was involved in a lot of covert action and that almost always becomes public. So the things we've talked about today mm-hmm. are all in the public record because these are been declassified and, and so on. What isn't declassified is how to think about it. And I think that's a contribution. I make. I think I make two contributions when I write. One is pulling the facts together in one place to make a coherent whole out of it. And second, I use my spy master's prism to give my interpretation for what it, you know for what it's worth. It's my look at the business, these events from that optic. And the prism allows that A lot of other people can be looking at it differently. And I, I'm fully understanding of that. But I want and, to make sure that the the intelligence prism, or at least from one one optic mind, uh, has, has a hearing.
3: Well, it wouldn't be a uh, complete podcast if we didn't get into some of the the more difficult parts of uh, the history of the agency. And that was, there There was a couple of moles, Russian moles, and involved uh, one of them, Alder James, and the other, Robert Hansen. But uh, Robert Hansen was an FBI agent. But, but uh, I think both of them caused untold amount of damage. And you, you talked about that in the book. And you know, one of the things that came out about both of them, and you, you mentioned this, is they were both kind of underachievers. And that's kind of, uh, you know, is this the kind of thing that our counterintelligence people look for? Is guys who are underachieving, guys who are kind of stymied in their career?
2: Yes, that's the short answer. The long answer is... Uh... It's the the counterintelligence business, finding spies within the system. It's a real art form, and again, it's another one. It's like logistics. It's unsung. You know, you usually don't get an award for finding a spy, at least in our culture. The KGB gives you a medal if you find an American spy in your system. We we tend to we tend to give out reprimands. But so I knew Rick Ames, and I, I knew him reasonably well. And uh, that's why it's it's more painful. When you know it's sp- you meet a spy and you know them and you work with them, uh, you know, it, it leaves a lot of uh, introspection. But I knew Rick from the very first day I walked into the, the building. He was working on Russia, I was working on Eastern Europe in a you know, a, an administrative job, just basically looking at cables and assigning them to be filed somewhere. But you know, he was uh uh, he was someone that came from a CIA family. I really didn't have any roots, background. like can color background. Foreign Service, what is that? Is that the Foreign Legion? So, you know, it was, uh, he was steeped in the lore of it. Um, and uh, I went to his wedding. Uh, he was, a he liked to smoke, he liked that, have a drink, but he, he was not very materialistic, was kind of unchecked if you will. And I didn't see him for, for for 20 years, but over those 20 years, what surfers with Rick was, and and then retrospect as well. You know, you think you can size up the ego of somebody, but what I learned over many years is that whatever you think an ego is, is probably twice the size. Even people that look humble have an ego. So in Rick's case, you know, I didn't, I didn't, because I didn't see the reason why would you have such a big ego, right? He's a smart guy, read a lot, Um, but, uh, his performance. He just was a terrible underperformance. He did very well on things he liked, you know. But you can't go to life and say, Listen, I like I just like to do one thing. Right? You know, uh cleaning again. I'm not gonna clean it again, I'll just shoot it, you know. <laughs> well that's good. Uh so he was an underperformer and what happens and this is why I think it is a a telltale sign when you look for when you go hunting for a spy. And that's when you have this uh, narcissistic bigger-than-life ego, and they can be subdued. You don't have to be walking around in a flashy suit. I mean, you you just have to be able to understand that people really think they are good. And combined with underperforming, and then they cannot figure out, I'm so good, why am I not being promoted when Jack Devon's being promoted? And so it's that gap between self-evaluation and performance. And then they become disabled dissatisfied with the system. Rick was not converted to communism. Robert Hanson never converted to communism. They just thought that they they were really gifted men and nobody appreciated them and uh they were getting the roll end of the the stake. So you know where where does treason begin? It begins in the mind and it begins in this this, this space. Um, both of them uh, had the fluke of life, the Russians got so lucky that in one point in time they had two of the guys in the most sensitive Russia offices, you know, in the U.S. government, right? So that's a that's luck, and but you can't argue against it. So they not only had the treasonous mind, they had access to things that mattered. And uh, in Rick's case, he 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 drank and drank a lot. The the medic said he was an alcoholic, but it's a a distinction without a difference, in other words. And uh, so he drank a lot, but it was episodical. So he had a reason to go in the Russian embassy because he had a reason because he was a CIA Russian law specialist. He had a reason. And he sat outside in in Georgetown and had three or four or five vodkas or whatever and then decided he was going to walk in. And he was going to handle, this is the other part of the, year. he could handle them, right? So then he was going to use a little sheet of paper with a couple of names on it or something. And the second meeting, he dumped 11 of our best Russians in the Kremlin and intelligence services. He gave them the whole, uh, it was in June or July of 85, and uh, he, he gave he gave them the crown jewels. They all were executed. Mm. The KGB was urging not to execute them, right? Because what they wanted to do was to run you know, run operations, but the, the Politburo just found it such an such an, an affront to the communist system or whatever. They had them all executed. But it took a while for the agency to come to terms with it. Same with the FBI. I was hunting for Hansen in CIA because I knew there was another mole. Didn't answer all the questions, but the FBI thought he was in CIA. But later on, it turned out he was smashing the middle of their Russian operation. So, um, the uh, the opportunities that uh, that they had made uh, made made a big uh, a big a big difference in when they when they absolutely started working for for the Russians. And what was interesting in both cases, I should point about the other side of the flip coin and there's movies out. So if you look at the movies, you have to pay careful attention. Breach, which I think is a very good movie about Hanson, but you have to listen carefully because it looks like all the work is being done by getting his, what they used to call a pilot and getting his phone. But the title of my chapter is it takes a spy to catch a spy. Uh So the way we got Hanson, the way we got Ames is, Another spy, a Russian spy, gave them up, right? And we had a hard time, as I was saying a few minutes ago, coming to terms that we actually had a spy. The FBI had it. Can't be one of us. We're all patriots, right? And what I make the point in my book for those that are going to become students of intelligence business, you must assume you always have spies. We've always had them inside our system. We have them inside our government. It's naive to think otherwise. And you need to have a strong counterintelligence. But it took us a few years to find names because we got distracted when Lone Tree walked in, uh, left the Russians in the embassy in Moscow. We thought that's how we lost our Asians. And then there was a technological reason. They spent a year analyzing beams bouncing off of us. And eventually they went, they almost didn't go back. One woman, Jean vertebrae was about to retire so let me go through the file again. Let me see if I can find something there. And then hence began the unraveling of Ames and then we got a break with the, the defector. So it's an important, uh, I spend more time on spy cases and good hunting. I spend a lot on covert action. Both of them have spy cases and, and so on. But, uh, you know, they're, they're fascinating to read and you can, the reason I say it, it takes a spy catch a spy is when I went back and started doing the research, it's very hard for me to find one that wasn't, wasn't compromised by another spy. And I think it's an interesting read in that regard.
3: Hmm. Yeah. And uh, again, I mean, well, I, uh, I asked you for 60 minutes of your time. We're almost at an hour and a half, but I did want to ask you well. Uh, you know, from an uh, insider's perspective, somebody who spent a, a good chunk of your life there, uh, how do you feel the agency's looking moving forward? I know we kind of switched gears a little bit uh, after nine eleven, and, you know, we got uh, the entire apparatus involved with counterterrorism. And now it looks like we're going back to the big game with the Russians and the Chinese. How are we looking? How do you feel like the CIA is matching up, uh, switching gears at this point? So your last point is, I mean, uh,
2: is a really good one about the change in targeting, right? So I, I must say, uh, every once in a while, I get things right and, and good hunting. I basically said that, you know, this is in '14. that Basically, we were going to be moving into a new target set, which would be nationalism is coming back and we'd be going back to the hard targets and terrorism will be waning. But I very carefully put in that terrorism was not going away to totally, you know, any given day. I mean, you know, nine-eleven that one day changed the next 20 years in terms of how we were going to spend money in, in uh, national defense. So, uh, but it was, seem, it seemed to me that there was a trend line in terrorism. We've seen it spike in the 70s, it was much worse. And uh, it was, uh, 9 11 attack, and you know, a lot of effort was put into fighting it. But we shifted because the Cold War had come to an end, we shifted to the uh, counterterrorism arena, and all agencies' you know budgets were funneled into it. And it changes, it, it becomes a, a different target set, different types of people need to do the jobs. Heavy emphasis on paramilitary, tactical and i i think you know we can see it changing over the last couple of years and the agency and all uh the military has to go through the same process of how do you adjust readjust now to a uh, you know to a nation state like china how do you how do you deal with uh, and deal with an aggressive uh, russia and how do you allocate your budget so if you're internally in, in both the military and the CIA, you have to do some soul searching we've done it before Military and the CIA, and you have to ask: What type of soldiers are we going to need? What are targets? What what tools are we going to use? So I think uh, my exposure to the CIA would suggest that we have, you know, a very talented people. We certainly have talented people in the military. The military is one of the best trainers in history, and how they train vast numbers of people with diverse backgrounds. So I think we have we have that capability. I think there's a question of will outside of the agency and outside of uh, the military. And that is, where, where, where is this country? Uh, where do we want to go? I mean, what's the policy? In other words, if you tell the military, this is what I want done, they'll get it done. You tell the agency, these are the priorities. So, I, again, come back to dysfunctional Congress, you know, we need to get our act together on. What is it? What is it that we're going to be doing with these these tools? And uh, and I think the presidential policy they have to decide, you know, what matters. I think the agencies are capable of doing it, but they all have to re. They're in a process. They need to go through a process of retooling and how they do it. And the other thing that I would say, and I, I would say less this is less true of the military because their weapons are modernizing and support things are modernizing. it's an overt world that's not exactly true the fact that you're modernizing eventually the fact that you have a you know an advanced weapon system is visible to everybody the production of it is very secret but in the uh, you know the intelligence world uh, we're moving so fast in terms of cyber and communications and what's possible can the people inside the agency (coughs) Are they tooled? Are are, are we collecting the right way? Are we the the way that we collected in my era? Is it the same approach? Are we modern enough? And uh, I think the book is to be written yet on that. Past my experience would tell me in the past we measured up and made the adjustments every time there was an innovation. But I do think we're in a transition here, partly a policy transition, partly the tools of spying, the tools of warfare, tra- training. We need to make sure we've got the right tools lined up for the right targets. And, and uh, we need to change our mindset about how we do do certain things. Uh, you know, are we gonna wait for somebody to walk into an embassy when we have a 20-foot wall around it? How, how are we getting sources when you can use your phone to reach thousands of people and basically cold-pitch them? If that's what you wanna do, but those decisions have to be. Be made. I don't think they're completely joined yet. I think they're it's in process, and and I guess I would say I'm optimistic, optimistic, but recognizing that there's no smooth path forward. There'll be bumps. There'll be failures, uh, but hopefully the failures turn into you know uh, successes because you learn from them. So I, I think there's a bumpy. I think we're going into a bumpy road on so many aspects of American life including national uh, security.
3: All it's right, not well, tied to,
2: I want to be clear. It's not tied to Trump. It's not tied to Biden. It's uh, where are we are in our national psyche. Where mm-hmm. are we
3: and what matters to us? Well, we encourage all our listeners to, to uh, read Jack Devine's new book, A Spy Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. It comes out on March 1st. It is definitely a compelling read and uh, we want to thank thank you, sir, for your, one, for your service, your 32 years with the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, now he's a uh, founding partner and the president of the Arkin Group, which is an internal crisis management and strategic intelligence um, uh, organization, but it's not a mini CIA as he put out earlier um but before we go i just need to read something real quick if you want to get softrep on your phone download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles podcasts gear reviews all perfectly formatted to your device please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to our library of ebooks and our exclusive team room forums and content all available on apple and android devices Jack, thank you for taking the time with us today. I, I wish uh, we could spend another three hours. I could talk to you about a myriad of other t- subjects, and I would love to pick your brain on it, but we'll have to do this again sometime real soon. But thank you, uh, and thanks for your service. Thanks for your uh, input today. I think all of our listeners are really getting a lot out of this.
2: Thank you for giving me an opportunity to say thank you to all the folks out there.
3: Because they- and well,
2: we'll
3: good luck with it. Yeah, good luck with the book. Now, do you have any book signings coming? I know with COVID, it's probably not uh, as probably as uh, prevalent as those things used to be.
2: Right. I think what uh, what I'm going to try and do, and maybe I can follow up behind this with, you know, if you could put out sort of links where they can get, you know, get the books, it would be helpful. Sure. In the old days, I would show up and and sign a lot of books, but I don't think that's going to happen, and it's it's a limiting factor. But I do think I'm going to have systematized linking, uh, so uh, listeners can can more easily. It's it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's out there and readily available. But uh, and if someone likes it, write a good review. If they don't like it, don't do anything. Well,
3: we'll we'll be writing a review from uh, from my reading of it. Uh, it'll be out right about the time the podcast comes out, and it should be right around the time the book gets released. So, hopefully, we'll we can help you uh, generate a couple of sales of that as well. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It was a
2: pleasure. I, I, I mean, it's really good to have an interview with someone that's actually read the material and knowledgeable about it, and some of the fun things with the meals was great. <laughs> uh, this when you send it out, just flag it for me, the link, because I'm going to put it out to our
3: clients and friends, too, and, and make sure they know about the radio program. So thank you very much. Sure thing. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And thanks for all our listeners out there. Uh, for myself, Steve Balsuri, our, our uh, special guest today, uh, Jack Devine from the CIA. And uh, definitely read his book. Spy Master's Prism for all of us here we'll be back real soon with another podcast
1: you've been listening to Soft Rep Radio from BBC Radio 4 Britain's biggest paranormal podcast